Nobody has a crystal ball. If you can hunt in areas where it seems like there is, you know, like already a proven path and that like where it's there's proven demand, right? Like what Uber proved was that there was demand for an app-based ride hailing system. For a little while, you could then try and create a local app-based ride hailing system. But you might have gotten killed by Uber by now, right? So sometimes these things, you know, make sense globally and like it's really hard to win. Other times there's a market opportunity, but you know, I think like Meituan and China. Hi everyone, welcome to one more episode of our podcast, Hola Mundo. This time we are recording in English because our guest is Nate Singer. He's now based in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. He's uh, managing director at Mission Holdings Management. It's a $2 billion holding company for the assets of entrepreneur investor Saurabh Mittal, who, who is one of the uh, first, uh, well, is one of the Forbes 40 on the 40, I, I, I believe, 40 under 40 from India. Nate's role in Mission Holdings, he co-runs the firm's liquid capital across investments in public markets, private equity, and venture capital. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome, Nate. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mauricio. Good to, uh, good to see you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. No, th th thanks to you. And with us is also uh, Jonathan Ruiz, who is our co-host in the podcast. Hey, Jonathan, how's everything? Hello, Mauricio. Hola a todos. Gracias por soportar un podcast en otro idioma. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nate. Sí, es gracias. Bienvenidos. So, so we can just jump in. Um, so, Nate, uh, as I was telling you before the, the podcast, uh, we, we always start with uh, talking about your, your life, your, your bio, like who, who is Nate Singer? What is your, your, your role right now? Um, could you tell us about your professional career and trajectory? How did you get into where you are right now? Sure thing. Um, <clears throat> I just go into a little personal, a little personal bio. Yeah, yeah, can, yeah. I mean, I can rattle off my resume, but let's, um, you know, what motivates, what motivates somebody to do whatever I've done? So just, just quick background. Um, I uh, grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, uh, was fortunate enough to go to um, a private school for the first few years of my life. Then we moved outside of New York City um, and to upstate New York. Um, I went to a public school um, and was a little bit like culturally, it was just a very different place. And so if I think about for me, I didn't feel like going and living in Rochester, New York, where I found myself would be um, intellectually a, a satisfying experience for me. I just didn't, I just didn't really fit. And so I had this concept of what the San Francisco Bay Area was like. And actually I thought it was palm trees and girls in bikinis on the beach, as well as like really good like science. And if you could mill, if you could merge those two things together, how happy, you know, could 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 you be? And so um, when it came to applying, came time to apply to colleges, um, I applied to UC Berkeley and was extremely disappointed to get rejected. Um, but I graduated from UC Berkeley. And so I think that one of the realizations that I had, um, this was uh, at the very end of, of high school, was if I'm going to um, uh, 
be an agent in my future, if I'm actually going to really um, uh, engage with the world to the degree that I, that I want to, I might have to fight for stuff. And so I actually appealed the, uh, the rejection to UC Berkeley. Um, and, uh, I'm the only person I've ever met who got in off appeal and it wasn't, it's not like I had any back room connection, but there it is. And I made the promise to myself that I would make the best of it. Um, I graduated as valedictorian of the math department for Berkeley. Um, I was, uh, university medal finalist, So it was number two in, in the class of 7,000 people, um, and spent a ton of time trying to make sure that I was, you know, towards the top of the pack because I had something to prove. Um, and that's like, you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about what motivates people. Um, and I'm happy to be open about that. You know, most people, you just look at them and they're next to you in the store. Um, you know, but really what the source of, of drive, you know, is many different dimensions to it. And I think that for me, um, it's been this desire to be able to unlock the doors to the world's knowledge um, and not get um, confined. And I think that, you know, that probably resonates with, um, with a number of, you know, of, of, of your listeners, but really this motivation to be able to experience and explore, as well as to be able to build, um, you know, with people who are really engaged and, you know, to be able to make something of, of our lives. Um, and so I feel like I, I, everybody's had their own struggles and their, their own journeys, at least that's a little bit of, uh, of, you know, a little bit of my story. Considering that you are, you are, you feel that, uh, well, you wanted an intellectual challenge uh, and coming from New York, um, probably not from, from Manhattan, but from New York, you were exposed to many options, which could be on arts, science, but why on business? Why did you choose that, that way, that path? Yeah. So when I was, um, Initially, as an undergrad, I studied mathematics. And the, the reason why I studied math was because I didn't want my lack of um, resources to be able to constrain what I was able to do, right? I figured if I, I can just think about math problems as I'm walking down the beach with these, you know, mythical girls in bikinis, so how amazing would that be, right? Um, and, uh, you know, but what I realized is actually the, the, inter, the interface with the outside world is like actually what it's all about, because otherwise you live in, a you know, this kind of, you know, construct like this, you know, it's truth, but it doesn't exist. Right. And so you can either have your truth or you can actually, you know, engage. And I started thinking about, OK, well, what is it going to take to make change in the world? You know, so some of the things that I really strongly believe in, um, you know, I can actually have an impact. And um you know, everything at the end of the day comes down to economics. Why do people show, wake up at the time that they do? Well, because their job starts at the time that they do. Why do they go to school? Well, because they're going to have to get a job, right? I mean, the economics drives so much, and I think we'll all agree on that. And then, you know, the other to me was um, I'd done all this work in math, but I was always super curious about the stock market. As a kid, I had seen what are these stocks and why do they go up and down and can I predict it? And I would read books about George Soros. And so there was a kind of a natural bridge to me wanting to get into the business world, both of them as a means of saying, okay, how do I actually make an impact in the world? And how do I understand how, you know, economic forces all tie together as well as um, cool. Wouldn't it be awesome to crack the stock market and, you know, make a money machine that just keeps some printing dollar bills while I walk down the beach. Cause you know, wouldn't that be amazing. Right. 
Um, <laughs> but, you know, obviously, you know, there's, there's more to that. Um, and so I, I, um, I uh, was fortunate enough um, to kind of realize how important this was to me um, uh, before I had to go and apply for for jobs. And so I, I you know, learned about, you know, Bain and Company, um, a management consulting firm, um, and that they had these case interviews. And if I was able to get an interview at Bain and Company, then I probably, um, you know, would need to do a really good job at the case interviews because they didn't know that much about business. Um, uh, at that point, at least like Porter's five forces and these kind of business strategy theoretical questions. And um, so I gave myself a crash course in, uh, in business, did well enough to um, uh, uh, kind of get an offer from, uh, from Bain and Company um, and uh, found myself working at um, an Embarcadero Center in downtown San Francisco. Um, with a really smart group of people. Um, so I was fortunate to be able to enter that, that, that track, you know, from the beginning of my, uh, of my career. Um, and uh, from there, then that opened a number of doors to me. Um, uh, but yeah, that's at least that was, that was the, you know, from age of maybe 18 to, to 22. Nice. So, so Nate, you studied math, uh, I believe you were an excellent mathematician uh, since you were young and you like math. Uh, I, I saw your, uh, your LinkedIn profile and after, after Berkeley, you went to, I'm sorry, after UC, you went to uh, Harvard Business School and you did an MBA over there, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so I worked at Bain. Um, you know, I, it, was a, it was an interesting experience at that point. I still was, you know, super motivated to try to figure out how to crack the stock market. It's kind of like, let's just start there, right? So <laughs> let, let me turn it over there. So you were pretty good at math and you decided during college that you wanted to use your, your math abilities for the stock market, right? Or no, is that no, yeah, kind of, although what I, what I realized is that that wouldn't help you to understand the world, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's two different styles of investing. There's quant, there's quant and there's fundamentals. And what I realized was that um, the only way you actually understand like why all of this is happening and get a deeper understanding is to get to a, down to the fundamentals. And so, um, I was actually, it wasn't really involving math. It was kind of a, I, I was, I was, I was good. I was good at math, but I wasn't like, a, I wasn't on my way to being, you know, a published professor or anything. Right. I was just put my head down and, and, and tried to pass the tests and figured that if I could do that and like solve those hard problems, maybe I would be able to do okay um, uh, in the, in the business world. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't like applying some super sophisticated math. It was like addition and subtraction, a little bit of division, you know, it's about as hard as it got. Okay. Okay. So now you, you went to, to Bain and then from Bain, you went to Harvard Business School. Uh, I, there was a, there was a, um, a very important juncture for me professionally. Um, after Bain, I went to um, a team that managed money for Farallon Capital. Farallon at that point was one of the biggest um, hedge funds in the world. Uh, and that's where I met Saurabh. Um, Saurabh was a, was, was a partner, um, uh, had, had also built a family of public companies in India Um, and uh, he was in his 30s, right? Uh, he, uh, he was, you know, already very wealthy um, by the time that I was working for him, you know, but I was, what, 25 years old, bouncing around the world, um, uh, you know, working for, you know, very, like for, you know, very, really good learning environment. Um, so that is what teed me up to be able to eventually um, 
uh, go to Harvard Business School. Um, that was just such a great experience to, to to have. But the way that I got there, you know, it's always like I, I'm I'm trying to provide a little bit of extra transparency for you know because I don't think that you know people say, hey, look, look how smart I am. I did this. I did that. And they don't talk about the sacrifices along the way. Um, you know, I knew that I didn't want to go and become a, a VP at Hewlett Packard or some, you know, I didn't want to be embedded, you know, in mid-management mid in a large tech company. Um, and I still really had a real interest in, in like serious interest in finance because it was just such a, like, it, was, it was the kind of thing that would motivate me to wake up at 6 a.m. on a Saturday after I worked all week and read like finance textbook because I really was like, I think that where I've been able to find success is going and doing crazy things like that, that most people just wouldn't do. Um, and so I taught myself, I, I mean, if you can teach yourself math, you can probably teach yourself corporate finance. It wasn't that easy. You know, I signed up for different programs, building financial models. And, you know, I wouldn't say that my financial models were so much better than the next guys, you know, but like I got to the point where I could do it. Um, and I think that that level of, you know, hunger and dedication showed through when it, when I met Sora. Um, and I think back to some of my interview, you know, the interview questions that he asked me, and it certainly wasn't the quality of my, you know, like responses that got me the job. He asked me, what was my favorite company in the world? And I told him, uh, Maersk, the um, container shipping line company is horrible business. I mean, they're the biggest in the world, <laughs> but like their return on capital is single digits. Um, and that whole space is a mess, right? But I just thought it was cool because they're big boats, right? So, I mean, what does it take to get in? Well, okay, kid, I'll give you a flyer on that, you know, but clearly you're super passionate about it. We, I can set you straight on that dimension, what actually a good business looks like. Um, and so, you know, thanks to Sora, but you know, he pointed me, he did point me in the right direction. So, um, but yeah, it's a, uh, it was funny. So, you know, from there, then um, I went to Harvard Business School. Um, I was fortunate to run the investment club um, uh, at Harvard Business School um, and got to meet, you know, a lot of my classmates. Um, and uh, after that, I started a hedge fund. Um, I actually ran a company while I was at business school. Um, this was my first venture experience. Um, my best friend and I um, uh, got involved in running a company um, that was the first credit card terminal for the iPhone. Um, and that was a set of lessons learned that, uh, you know, super interesting lessons learned. This was in 2009, um, right before I went to business school, I was um, hanging out with them. We were hiking around um, Angel Island in the San Francisco Bay, super, super beautiful place. And he was um, describing how a friend of his had come across, you know, had developed this very basic, you know, technology. And if we could, um, you know, maybe he could go in and be the CEO of the company. I would, you know, provide a little bit of money just like as working capital for the business. And um, I would hire the CFO to work out of my second bedroom while I was an MBA student. And, you know, all, you know, the, the you know, the entrepreneurial dream in an environment where I wasn't personally taking much risk because I had another day job, which was being like an MBA student. And so I did, I had the CFO work out of my second bedroom um, and uh, you know, okay, so here's a bunch of lessons that you learn when you go and you're ahead of the technology curve, right? The company that came six months or nine months after us was Square and Square at one point was worth a hundred billion dollars. 
we did not make anywhere close to that. You know, we made like, like cents on like not even cents on that. Right. So what, what happened was, was, was I was 27 years old, you know, we were engaging with all of these people who had been in the industry forever. Then we saw this guy coming up with this, you know, great technology. And, um, we, uh, you know, did we know what we were doing? Mm, not really. Did we have some offers from people for not that much money? Yeah. But did it feel like a lot of money? Kind of. Yeah. And it, you know, it was an easy, it was, it was an easy win, you know, but what I didn't have was, you know, confidence that there would be room for a number two in the space of, <laughs> of, um, credit card processing, you know, uh, you know, next generation credit card processing. Right. And so, you know, a few lessons, one, if you're, you know, if there's a long-term theme that's real, that you feel like probably, you know, you could continue to like apply that knowledge, like that stuff, that knowledge accumulates over the course of years. Right. And so if we had just kept building that and, you know, had our heads screwed on, then, you know, eventually you create, like a real business. There's a number of things that that were business ideas that we had that then materialized into real businesses. One of them was something that's kind of similar to Uber, where we actually had, a, I think, even an LLC that was dedicated to taking to taxi taxi payments. Right, like 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 when you have an iPhone, why don't why now you can take credit cards for much cheaper. Um, you know, when I when I thought about I, I looked and just before this to see when Stripe was founded. Stripe was founded in 2010. The founders were like 22 years old when they started it, or whatever the Collison brothers were. They were not old. They're younger than me, right? And so this whole narrative that I had told myself in my head, where I'm like, okay, well, I'm still young, whatever. We'll figure it out. No, 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 no. Much bigger businesses are, you know, can be created. Age is not is not the limiting factor. Like, in fact, it's what gives you the time and creativity and craziness to be able to log the 20 hour days, to be able to pursue the theme when everybody else is worried about having their, you know, their base salary so they can feed their families. And that's the those are the, that's real. So, you know, I, I don't know. There are a lot of a lot of lessons you know, from what I would consider both my first initial success, as well as like, to some degree, my initial failure um, that I've tried to, you know, carry forward with me. Well, when you talk about San Francisco, Nate, it's kind of aspirational for everyone else in the world to have a, an economy, such an economy in a small piece of a small piece of the world that is so strong. And we will later uh, talk about the chances that you see in Latin America, considering that uh, it doesn't have many things that San Francisco has. But we will talk about that later. Before that, uh, I would like to ask you uh, uh, regarding, I mean, if you consider what has happened to the finance world during the last 100 years, it actually haven't changed that much. I mean, uh, I understand that there is new technology. FinTech is working about that. and to, But... Right now, I'm seeing two trends that may change the game. One of them is accountability. This proposal from the Securities and Exchange Commission to have accountability about your emissions, not only your numbers of money getting to the company, but your emissions, and not only yours, but the rest of the, the supply chain that you have emissions, that's something that I, I would like to hear your opinion about it. And the other one is blockchain, obviously. 
as, as another world that may change the finance sector. So considering those two trends, uh, which one would you say that is really going to change the game? Um, sure thing. So <clears throat> first, let's bucket the first in ESG consideration, considerations, right, which permeate, you know, throughout, right? So it's how do you carry yourself? How do you present yourself? Um, and then the other is, you know, it's blockchain, right? Um, I, I'm probably, you know, 10 out of 10 in how much I care about the, the environment in my life. Um, and, you know, emissions fall under that. Um, maybe I'm a nine out of 10, um, but I've definitely got, you know, like some, some family ties and kind of credibility to that statement. Um, however, I would say that as a startup slash entrepreneurial founder, unless the space that you're going into is specifically climate tech, of what, which is a large, like it was a mid-sized and growing field, there are opportunities that are, you know, in that domain. But for the majority of entrepreneurs, in particular tech entrepreneurs, I wouldn't say that ESG considerations um, come, come in that much beyond um, how do you want to set your company culture and you know, create a, a rallying point for kind of values for that company, right? So for instance, if I were to create a company, I might decide to say that my company 10% of profits would be going to social causes that we, the employees and the, and the board, believed were important, probably the employees as, you know, a way of them feeling like they're giving back with their lives, right? Um, but aside from that, most of the companies that I'm involved in, you know, you, you know, pay AWS for some, you know, outsourced server space, you, um, you know, pay, you know, HubSpot for your marketing technology and suite, you pay, you know, a number of other vendors and you create an LLC in the U.S. that's a limited liability corporation and you start hammering away. And if you have money, cool. If not, you figure it out and you hope that you find product market fit. So the ESG in my in my world doesn't really come up that much unless it's actually, um, you know, either, you know, company culture setting or uh, you're actually pursuing climate tech. Climate tech is a real set of opportunities due to, um, you know, just the, the world that, that we're in, um, government regulations um, kind of making it so that you've got like, you know, carbon related, you know, just all of a sudden people have to pay for carbon. So there's, you know, a number of opportunities that open up. I haven't dug as deeply into it because it hasn't created, like there just hasn't been a business imperative. Most of the things that, that I've um, uh, worked on have been more in the like the like the fintech space that I've found that to be quite a bit easier to to engage with, um, and the reason is if you can stay in the realm of software a little bit, like if you can stay in the realm of mathematics, things just flow quite a bit easier. If you don't have to interface with the outside world as much, if you don't have to build physical stuff, then you don't have like as many physical real world problems arise, right? And it doesn't like your business just doesn't scale as well. Um, and so at least that's, you know, on the, on the, 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 the ESG, the ESG theme, um, uh, most of the, I mean, it's incredible the value that gets created in some of these tech companies due to that scalability and being able to reach a global, you know, platform Miller, you know, Moller Maersk, you know, the container shipping company can only get so big, right. Right. I mean, you can only make your boats so big, you can only have so much market share in that space just because of the physical capacity of what you're doing, right? Versus Microsoft, which can, which, you know, is like a lot 
a lot higher market share and way more profitable, right? And so that's just been the better place to kind of create businesses. Right. And how about blockchain? I mean, what, uh, how much I mean, do you see that this is a game changer or this will be just a kind of an accessory of, of the financial sector? How do you see it? Sure thing. So yeah, we did it. We did it. We've done a couple of rounds of deep dives um, in blockchain. Uh, and I've, I've seen as uh, friends of mine have gone to work on various different projects. Um, some of them, some of which are super cool. And, you know, there's, there's a couple of like fundamental questions that I think I haven't really, you know, been answered. Where, okay. So first, where is blockchain technology today? Blockchain technology is like one step further than vacuum tubes, right? Like it is so slow. It, it, we're past punch cards. You know, we are kind of entering like, and, you know, for reference, that means like we're, it feels like we're like in the 80s in, or 70s, maybe a little bit further than that, but it's not very far along. The key issue is kind of processing power is just so low. Um, in the best systems, you know, you barely have, you know, you, you can't use this as like a replacement for AWS, right? Like it's like not even remotely close. Like you're, you're, you know, a, a zillionth, you know, even less than a zillionth of, of the combined processing power, but growing rapidly. Um, and there are definitely going to be use cases. And if I was an entrepreneur, um, I would be trying to figure out how to incorporate some blockchain realities into my business from early on, right? And there's like cool business models that emerged like around this whole idea of, you know, DAOs, DA, you know, decentralized autonomous organization or whatever. Um, that's like a great construct. But if you look at the actual businesses that have emerged, you know, either there's some kind of bastardized version of like, it's not really block, it's not really blockchain, like a hybrid blockchain idea. I don't know if there's any merit to that. I don't think there is, you know, or there's like the NFT economy which I'm sure there's some value behind these, you know, the board apes pictures, but those aren't, you know, real B2B business cases, right? And so there definitely are opportunities and I've seen pitches for different opportunities where it's like, okay, yeah, it's actually pretty good. I, I'm interested, but it hasn't crossed the chasm to like start to have like real mainstream um, adoption, which both, which means like, You know, will there be opportunities? Well, yeah, it's like a, it's a different kind of public data structure. It's like you can have contracts that are, you know, more have a degree of permanence and it's there, right? So I, I do, I, I do have a lot of excitement when friends, you know, update me about what they're working on. It's kind of like, oh, that's really cool, right? That's super cool. I, I've, you know, I've, I've toyed around with a few different projects also like myself, just with friends kind of being like, okay, well, could we create something? Um, and so I would put, I'd be more willing to put my time and effort behind the blockchain type initiatives, just because again, when you get to data and like the fundamental kind of data structures, if there's a replatforming that, that does start to occur, you kind of just want to be there. It's like when, you know, the world was so desktop and all of a sudden when mobile, you know, I was able to justify in my head, oh yeah, if we just spend a ton of time on mobile payments, then that's cool because I know that's going to grow. It's like, in this case, it's like, okay, there's a whole alternative data structure that's clearly one millionth, one one millionth today of what it will be. Okay, let's see, you know, where that shakes out. I think the last time I saw it, the com combined market cap of all of these blockchain projects was like 
two billion dollars, you know, Ethereum, Bitcoin, you know, NFTs, and something else, or two, you know, two, sorry, two trillion dollars, you know, relative to all the tech spend in the world of so many, you know, tech values of tens of trillions of dollars, will blockchain-based stuff eventually be at ten billion dollars? Yes, no doubt, right? And so, where does that, what does that mean? Well, it's like, well, there's a lot of opportunity from here to there for entrepreneurs to capture, you know, some of that value, and they should, and they should pursue it, and no, and no, no, why or why not? So I think it's mandatory, mandatory knowledge for for a lot of people right now. So Nate, what are some opportunities that you and a lot of U.S. investors see in uh, Mexico and in the rest of uh, LATAM um, that now the whole uh, LATAM is seen maybe as a, as one region, maybe because of the cultural uh, similarities we have and the language and. Uh, And a lot of investors, mainly in the U.S., are seeing uh, a lot of potential from startups and from entrepreneurs in 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 Mexico oh, yeah. and in the rest of Latin. Uh, what are some opportunities that you that you have seen? Uh, what is so exciting about about Latin that you no longer have in uh, in San Francisco and in and in the rest of the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll take it from two different from two different angles. Um, One is like export-oriented opportunities, and the other is local domestic opportunities. Um, let's start with um, export-oriented op opportunities, okay? And so what that means is, hey, I've got a company um, based in Latin America. For some reason, we can do stuff better, faster, cheaper than um, your, you know, domestic U.S. you know operations, and so you know, come, you know, source, source your needs from, from us instead of, you know, our US based competitors. Um, so let's just kind of, you know, go down that for, for a minute. Why is that? A, why are there compelling opportunities? Um, one, a lot of offshoring already is occurring. The amount of work that's going to India is huge. And that's because, in general, average wage rates in India are meaningfully lower than in the U.S. or in Latin America. However, um, the problem with with that has been um, it's not a great user experience for the customers from the perspective just of time zones. So you have very limited overlap. Um, so that's always been a challenge whenever you talk to people who work with Indian firms. Um, meanwhile. <clears throat> I think that what you've seen um, is uh, people have a much greater willingness to engage with um, folks via Zoom. And so COVID made this kind of mockery of borders that hasn't been fully internalized um, by uh, people who are used to only hiring inside the U.S. And so I've had friends at you know, companies ranging from uh, financial modeling building to legal services to um, IT services, Mauricio, um, where why would I hire somebody at double the wage rate in the US when I could source that talent and potentially have them, you know, have higher IQ, higher EQ, whatever, you know, like given the wage differential, I can get people, you know, uh, like for a San Francisco based company, meaningfully cheaper. So why would I like, like, I'm, it doesn't matter where people are working from anymore. Wait, wait, let me interrupt you there. Well, actually you were ending, but I this is the first time that I hear a phrase like this from somebody of the US. 
Okay. And, th- and, and this thing that, is, that you're thinking is naturally a game changer. I mean, it, uh, the Maquiladora system has been existed for, has been, it, it exists probably since 50 years ago. But you needed the physical interchange. I mean, you needed manufacturer to bring things and just send things, but everybody had to do with things. But when you're talking about services that doesn't have to cross the border, then, and you are getting services on this side, I mean, on the in the Mexico side of the border. So uh, uh, what we are thinking is uh, about a unified labor system in the region. Correct. Uh, so, it's benefit. It's a it's a benefit for the people who lives in Mexico. How about the people who lives in the U.S.? I not mean, benefit. Not a benefit. No, not a benefit. But kind of a benefit. Okay, and, and this is the way, right? It's this. You know, it's a little bit of a view that um, the every friend that I have. Okay, I have a portfolio company that is twenty percent. They're growing very very fast. They're twenty percent below their hiring needs. I have two portfolios. <laughs> multiple portfolio companies that are facing this, a very acute challenge, okay? Which is like, they cannot find the talent that they need in this economy, you know, the economy that we're in, which is either a great economy or not a great economy, but they're struggling, right? And so these are jobs that are not getting filled. What happens when the job doesn't get filled? The revenue doesn't get booked. When the revenue doesn't get booked, the value company's value doesn't go up. And so, you know, is it a good thing for companies to be able to achieve their potential that, you know, yes, definitely, absolutely. You know, on the other hand, is the marginal job going to somebody, you know, in, you know, potentially who's more deserving, who otherwise wouldn't have these opportunities? And so do you have to be more on your game? Yeah, to some degree, but I don't see it as purely a zero sum. There's definitely an element to it where it's like, yeah, it's a little bit of zero sum. But you're also helping to unlock, you know, like economic potential that would have otherwise never been achieved, right? It's the whole idea behind trade in general, which is, hey, wait, if I'm sourcing automobile parts from Mexico, then doesn't that mean that I'm not getting my automobile parts in the U.S.? Well, it's like, yes, but there's so many other opportunities and so many other, you know, places for people to be allocating, you know, their time. Let's just keep on working towards shared common human progress. That's the interesting thing about your comment. I mean, I don't see it as a zero zone. What I'm seeing is what kind of uh, uh, changes or what kind of opportunities uh, uh, the whole region may found on this transformation of the labor system. Because I, I, for me, the, the benefits that Mexicans get are clear. For an American, maybe not that clear, you know? Because if I'm an engineer that creates software, someone who can create software or whatever, and I'm in the same situation as someone else, let's say in Merida, where Mauricio is based right now, well, probably I will say, oh, maybe I will get, I, I will, I won't get as good paid as I was before. My salary is gonna be is gonna go down. That's one way to see it. Another way, we'll see, we'll say, I mean, I'm in a country with a, a, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of connections of knowledge. So what would be my next step in order to compete, you know? So uh, that's what I want. Uh, I mean, I want your feeling. About, the thing I've learned about capitalism is it's like, it doesn't have a doesn't have a heart because it doesn't need a heart because it just is a system, right? And so that's our economic reality. 
you know, uh, as, as as entrepreneurs, we can cry, you know, or as and we're all entrepreneurs. Even if we're an employee, we have to be trying to make sure that we have a good path that's, you know, that's solid and we're making a bet with our time, right? And so, yeah, I mean, all you can do is adjust, right? I mean, like all of the manufacturing went to China and, you know, outside the U.S., a lot, like at least a lot of manufacturing of big factory stuff that can be made in big factories moved, right? And yes, that was painful. And I've, I've, I've experienced the talents that have been hollowed out in the U.S. because of that. But I don't see, I don't see there being a policy change that's going to stop it. And so we can either try and fight it or we can figure out how do we create that as an opportunity. And, um, you know, I don't see there being any political backlash against this in particular, you know, right oh, now, absolutely. right now, it's just a world of opportunities for people in Mexico. And for people in the U.S., it's also a world of opportunities because, wow, all of a sudden I can have two people who are doing the job of one person think about all the stuff that I can sell when all of a sudden I can do that. And it's hugely an unlocking experience. You know, products quality, you know, product quality goes up. You know, your ability to launch new technology into the market goes up. It's a it's it's only a, it, like it for uh, what it feels like to be an entrepreneur amazing positive if I can tap into it effectively. And so what that means is like, what is it? It's incumbent on folks to be able to, you know, learn English though, so they can communicate and be as fluent as possible. So English language schools should be, um, you know, booked up because you do have to be able to understand English in order to engage with that system, as well as even hear what I'm saying. Actually, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Mauricio, for this, but I mean, if you see the Dow Jones, Uh, 20 years ago, you will see there Ford, Exxon, whatever in the top 10, right? Now you see that the classic, this graphic, new graphic with Apple and Google and Facebook or Meta, or whatever in the first places, right? So 20 years from now, what do you expect to see there? I mean, I don't, I don't expect you to tell me the names of the companies that will be there. Oh, oh, but, and I, oh believe me, I no, but, no, I'm not telling you. you <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> well, please tell me if you know them because this is the moment oh, to invest them. <laughs> But what what I what I say is, do you expect to see different names in 20 years there? Because another economy is created because of all these changes. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that you know it's been it's it is going to involve technology versus going the opposite direction. It's not like Semex is going to be number one, you know, and hopefully they don't come after me for saying that. I hope you guys can figure it out if you ever hear if you if you're listening, right? But. Uh, You know what? Uh, the reason is because the inherent scalability, and so what you're actually seeing is, um, you know, insights get propagated even more quickly now, and so you're going to have, you know, I think about like Alameda Research, which became FTX. You know, it's like 20 people, and the guy's like worth like I don't know, 20 billion dollars. Who knows what it's worth? But like, you know, there the leverage that one individual can have. Um, is only going to be getting higher versus lower because so many other things can be automated along the way and the use of AI technologies. Um, and so, you know, I... Uh, let, let me, let me just, you mentioned something very important that is now uh, going around in the whole social media, which is this, the founder of FTX is a guy who is, I believe he's below, he's 20 something and he's going famous because he, he, he said that he's now worth like 20 four billion dollars maybe and he's he's going around saying that he's going to give everything everything away right is he the guy yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, so that, that that's really interesting and ftx 
for the audience is a crypto exchange. It's a crypto exchange company, right? Yeah. 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 Super interesting story. I mean, like you can consider him to be a, like a role model in some way or, you know, a, a version of, you know, life spiraling out of control. He sleeps on his beanbag next to his desk. I don't know, you know, how many, I don't think my wife would be that excited if I kind of created a second, a second, you know, a, a second sleeping situation, you know, right by my desk, you know, but again, that speaks to the opportunity that 20 year olds have. And if I were to just say one thing, you know, around the mentality difference that I live in in my world is um, so much business happens on the back of, you know, people who are 20 years old. There's it's such a leveraged position to be in. And, uh, you know, to think that that's like, like, it feels like the, the view of the pyramid of opportunity is, you know, is inverted where people historically were 60 years old and they were making peak earnings. And at least in this kind of more tech arena for people who are focused and really aggressive, you know, there are opportunities that are not open to them. Like there are opportunities when you're in your twenties that are not open to you when you're in your thirties and forties. Right. And so that's a realization I think that I've had, especially now as I'm, you know, entering into my forties pretty soon. And that's like, um, you know, find some really smart 20 year olds, partner with them, you know, get them some capital and hang on. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> like, that's just where the energy and the creativity is, um, you know, and obviously, you know, most of the people I work with are, you know, are older, or, you know, you know, but it's, um, I don't know, actually, a lot of my team is in their 20s. So I live, I, I walk the walk there. Nate, but you were dividing this conversation between exports, and you were with another you were coming with another topic right okay so, so going back to that to that question of how to how to think about why is latin america so interesting from the perspective of outside investors um so first the export driven businesses i think that that's a great a great opportunity that's 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 really opened up and there's so much opportunity again i just before i leave that topic there is so much opportunity um, it's like you, you know, making sales is painful, and but you have a better, you have a, you have a compelling service as long as you have people who are fluent and are smart. You're in, you just structurally you're in a better position than most. You know, you just got to get connected to customers. Um, from a domestic perspective, um, <clears throat> so a company that we that we've invested in through a partner is Rappi. Um, okay, and so here's how I think about Rappi versus Uber Eats. Okay, I think, and I hope, I really hope <laughs> that they're winning against Uber Eats, you know, in like the markets that they compete in. Okay, and that shouldn't happen for a tech business because Uber is bigger and has some technology scale. <clears throat> but localization is super important, right? A lot of this technology, you know, another company that's been wildly successful um, is like D-Local, which is a payments company focused on emerging markets versus the large kind of developed markets. And so coming out of, you know, coming, coming, at these markets with an understanding of the local environment and how to market effectively and how to build a presence in each local market, that's just a cultural like advantage. You're just there, you're in it, you know it, right? And so not all businesses are like Microsoft Word, which is there's one global winner and everybody else suffers. A lot of businesses are local and you can have that be, business be in the trash collection business, which is very hard to scale and has a low return on capital, or you can find kind of tech enabled business opportunities and that whole space is, again, there's tons of companies that are running on 20-year-old technology. Most of the world is run on 20-year-old technology. And so if you can come in and find places where technology has like real leveraged opportunities, where there's some scale that you can get to because it costs money to develop technology, 
So you have a minimum, you know, market size, but it's, it's, you just have to approach it, you know, humbly and kind of recognize where it's like, yeah, I'm coming at it with a fresh set of eyes and there's real value there. And um, so I think that there's tons and tons of opportunity to just redo industries that are horribly inefficient, um, you know, in, in, in a country like, 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 like Mexico, um, big country, very big domestic economy, you know, and you can even just start at the most basic level, right? Business formation and maintenance of the business, right? What is the process that you go through in Mexico? Is it 100% digital? In the U.S., it doesn't feel 100% digital. You know, in the company, I've heard pitches and Stripe just came out with some, you know, start a new business thing via Stripe, right? And it's just like, seriously, those guys are the ones who are innovating that, you know, because the problem hasn't been solved. And globally, I'm sure it hasn't been solved. You go to Nicaragua, I, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have it so that there was a full digital experience there? And I have no idea how you would go about it, right? And so there's just tons and tons of opportunities um, wherever you are to be trying to apply technology um, to, uh, to, to business problems and trying to automate and trying to create a better user experience every step of the way when, from the minute that you wake up to the, where you go to bed. Some of them will belong to Microsoft one day and others will, will, will you know, the local player will have a real advantage. A lot of people say that entrepreneurs should, should be good copycats, right? Like um, we should be good copycats. What do you think about this, this mentality of just like maybe Latin entrepreneurs should see what is going on in the US, what platforms are, are, are great over there now, uh, what platforms in the US uh, have a lot of users and look back to, to Latin, maybe Mexico, see that, okay, we don't have in Mexico yet this platform that in the US everyone uses for maybe, I don't know, uh, ESG, like uh, you were talking, just like in, maybe in the US now you have a lot of ESG platforms and in Mexico, we are still lagging on that, on that area. So, so one good strategy for entrepreneurs should be to just see what these platforms are doing okay and bring that To, to Mexico and just tropicalize it and do it like for, for the, for the mm -hmm. users here. I mean, it's a good, it's a, it's a good theme for, for investors to be able to invest behind. So you've de-risked the, like some questions around like um, product market fit, or at least you've kind of indicated that there's probably an opportunity there. Um, and I've definitely seen some of the businesses that have emerged that have been just tremendous businesses that kind of came out of at least that as their starting point, right? So you cross that with, you know, is that a good place to hunt versus what do I come, like, what do I bring and do I really want to hunt there, right? Um, but yeah, finding product market fit, especially finding big markets, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not sure that, I mean, I talk about this even with, with, with Sora, but it's like neither of us has an amazing crystal ball about where opportunities will be. Nobody has... A crystal ball. If you can hunt in areas where it seems like there is, you know, like already a proven path and that like where it's, there's proven demand, right? Like what Uber proved was that there was demand for an app-based ride hailing system. For a little while, you could then try and create a local app-based ride hailing system. But you might've gotten killed by Uber by now, right? So sometimes these things, you know, make sense globally. And like, it's really hard to win. Other times there's a market opportunity, but 
you know, I think like Meituan in, in China was, you know, early, you know, kind of rip off of Facebook. Um, my MBA class, we had somebody who went and tried to create um, like a Groupon of Korea that became like the guy's now a billionaire, right? So that was his pitch. I'm going to create the Groupon of Korea. So does it work? If Yeah, of course it works. I mean, like I've like Grab Taxi was another classmate of mine from H. I mean, it's crazy. You know, that was... So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a path to to making money, but will you be the person who's going to execute on it? Those guys didn't know anything about those markets, by the way. What they had access to was like they had a little bit of like an ability to raise capital, which these ideas take, right? Because there's two different approaches to trying to do this. Go big or go home or just find a business and make it work. And if you make $10 million off of it, nobody's crying, right? Like, Going big and going home, oh, it, it can only work if I raise $50 million of venture capital. Look, if that's the, like, I just don't think you're going to see that many, that means that there's going to have to be a huge exit, like billion dollar plus exit for those investors in order for them to want to get involved. That's a lot to take on for a first time, like real entrepreneur, right? So for people who are younger, do you really want to approach that where you need so much capital to get started? Or do you want to try and go in a more capital efficient manner so that you're not contingent on hoping that there will be venture capitalists there next time? Otherwise, you otherwise you walk away with nothing, right? So, you know, I if I were an entrepreneur starting off, without having a strong compass where I'm like, I know this space so well, I know exactly what needs to be executed on and I've made money in this space. If you're a first time entrepreneur, I would be more focused on what is the theme that I want to pursue for many years that I believe will be a 20X bigger market in 10 years time and it will really be that much bigger. And I'll pay my dues and just try and learn as much as I can about this space for the next three to five years. And if that means I'm doing it in my own small company, okay. Or if that means I'm going and working for the best employer who will give me the best possible skills so that then I can go and try and create my own small company, okay. But you don't wanna spend more than a few years educating yourself you know, before like, I mean, if you're gonna try and start something in your, in your 20s, although obviously you can start something in your 30s and your 40s and there's tons of opportunities. Mostly I've been in this industry now for 10 years I just have to pursue this opportunity that I see and that like strong compulsion to kind of prove oneself, you know, to answer your question. Yes, you can take ideas that are proven in the U S that do not have a local, but you can also just wake up and say, what are the problems I'm facing in my day that feel local to my community, but where I'm still going to impact hundreds of thousands of people. If I can get to some kind of a scaled company, pursue that. And that company might not work, but then have, you know, conviction in the theme and recognize, cool, that was, you know, hopefully not too much more expensive than a college education, you know, and like, here we go, go again. Yes, I, I love the example you gave about uh, this guy that did the Groupon in, in Korea, right? The Groupon of Korea, like how many more ideas we, we still have that we can make in Mexico or in, in Latin, like to the X of, of Mexico that is now in, in US is a, is a success story, but we still don't have that in Mexico, right? I talk about a lot of clients that, I mean, this is a very important point for me because a lot of clients and people that I see come to us to, to make some uh, new projects, digital startups, and they want to do like, they want to feel like they are discovering like the, the wheel, right? Starbucks was started after being inspired by an Italian coffee shop idea. 
right? Like, like that, it wasn't like some technology curve that happened. Chipotle was the idea of, we want burritos in the US too. And like, like if we can have good burritos with good ingredients, that wouldn't that be better, <laughs> right? Actually, burritos are Americans. I know they're American, but the, the Mexican flavors, the Mexican flavor profile. I know, I know, I know. Uh, I don't know if, if you are aware of what's going on with Tiger, Tiger Global. <clears throat> Tiger Global has invested in Latin America, but Tiger Global is not having its best days uh, right now. Now we see that uh, JP, it got credit from JP Morgan in order to do some investments there. Are you any kind of uh, worried about the situation of Tiger Global as a sign of something that happened uh, somewhere else in other uh, companies similar to Tiger Global? No, I'll tell you uh, the impression that I get when I talk with my tech friends is they're all super rich and the people who weren't doing it are not as, as not as they're right. So they're they're still fat and happy. And I think that they believe that they are sitting on the in the right part of the of the economic sphere where they are, who cares? They take a mark to market hit after being up so much for so long. Um, and they know that the majority of economic opportunities are happening in their space. Um, and so that brand is not being, I don't think is being diminished that that badly you know i was up i doubled i doubled i doubled i'm down 50 percent. okay i lost one or two years worth of returns over the course of my career <clears throat> i'm fi i'm fishing in the right in the right part of the ocean right and that's like the 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 main thing that i really want to hammer home is like a big lesson for me which is um be in a place where you want to be fishing there for the next 20 years because you're going to learn where the fish hang hang out Right. And ideally there, like, make sure that where you're fishing, there are fish. Right. That was like a piece of advice that I was, you know, given uh, a while ago. And it's, it just, you just have to have conviction in the long-term theme of where you're at um, because that, that knowledge compounds on itself and then be aggressive. If you people to your left and right are not um, as aggressive as you are, um, then know that you will be in a different place. It's not that you need to change and conform to be them. Be true to who you are if you have strong, strong, strong desire to be, you know, in a bigger position than you are right now. Um, and you feel like you're kind of weird because of it. Um, that's okay. The people who are, you know, running these different companies are weird too. It just, that's where you, like, you just gotta, have, you gotta have conviction though and be okay with it. You'll be, you'll steadily, Life will kind of sift itself out and you'll you'll steadily get connected to people who are better able to plug you into the types of opportunities that you're looking for. At least, you know, you have to try. What advice would you give to Latin and Mexican tech entrepreneurs uh, that are trying to maybe start a, a digital platform, a SaaS business? Uh, we are, as, as we were talking before, we, we are hearing just from one year ago, we're starting to hear all this buzz about unicorn startups and a lot of people in the region still don't know what a unicorn is. Uh, I get asked a lot that question. So, but we, we are starting to have this, this uh, ecosystem that you had since, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago in San Francisco. And uh, what, what advice would you give to them? Like what, how, how should they think, think what should they uh, do um, 
what 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 tactics would you give them yeah sure um <clears throat> so my, some of my observation um product is not everything so you can have a product idea but i what i'm kind of i just think is still incredible to me is that for these leading SaaS businesses 50% of revenue goes to sales and marketing 20% goes to r&d okay so what does that mean that means that however good your product is you're going to have to spend more than two times as much effort selling that thing and so you have to really think about that as part of your business plan is like okay i'm really going to need to sell the product needs to be simple because i really shouldn't be spending that much time developing it so as an entrepreneur you can't just be like i'm like i just love the product i love the product i love the product it's like no i love to sell i love to sell i love to sell find me a product that i can sell right and like I, like so there's insights but i see a lot of people get hung up on like the go to market motions just not good and so they end up shredding years of their life because they're just like i'm just not getting traction so once you start to gain traction you know then you can really start to invest more in the product but try and keep your insights simple and have your expenses be relatively low to coming up with idea and just iterate and iterate until you get like real high quality kind of product market pull you don't even need like you can do that while you have a full-time job you know as long as you know and have some friends who are software engineers and just keep it simple have basic prototypes get it so that you find 10 customers who are like find 10 people who are willing paying customers it starts with two find two people who are like i would pay you for that i would actually pay you for that then find 10 don't go and say i need to raise so many millions of dollars of venture capital from the get go you know be a good enough entrepreneur so that you don't need the capital and then the entrepreneurs will come and try and pour fuel on the fire but don't think that you know the the, the investor is going to or the venture capitalist is going to you know help you spark the you know spark the match because that's just not the business that 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 any investor can really be in and you know it doesn't take that much in the way of resources to get there um and so it's an empowering message which is go do it you know do it but be 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 smart about the business reality and recognize sales and marketing is a big deal yes would you do you prefer b2b or b2c personally b2b i like b2b b2b significantly more b2c is a lot more of a winner take all situation it's hard to know who the winners are going to be versus the losers obviously if it works then you get what you know has been described as like internet scale businesses which means like holy like there's no i don't need to hire more sales guys to make more sales so your business can can go super exponential b2b is usually a little, little bit more of a slog because you have to have sales guys to make the incremental sale you need your you know those economics to work out but i find that from a business logic perspective it's um it's just a lot easier for me as an investor to invest behind it the vast majority of what i both invest in as well as make money in, you know is like uh just purely b2b just I, i there's just a logic it's so much easier for me to understand they're not they're not always as big businesses i mean apple is the biggest business in the world and i would consider that to be kind of b2c you know i mean they have they're very clued into you know what's cool right um if you believe that you know what's cool then you can you can still create a product but i just the way that i see it is you know b2b to market is a thousand you know as hundreds of thousands millions of dollars of like millions of businesses that can exist serving b2b 
B2C, you know, is basically the shelves of what's in the supermarket, um, the shelves of what's in, you know, the hardware store. And like, you know, outside of that, your category is just going to be very, very small. Um, Facebook advertising, other forms of kind of direct to consumer advertising made that simpler. And some people really have a tendency to want to go in that direction. And that's probably the right place for them. For me, you said, where would I go? I go to B2B. One last question. In what industry would you, do you prefer? Like a B2B platform for what? You know, for me, it's close. I hunt close to the things that I just have personal interests in, right? And so that's investing, education. And those are just things that I've just had a long enough term interest that I just keep going. But if I had a real interest in, you know, and like mechanical engineering or something, then I would probably try and kind of hunt there and spend, you know, spend time there because everything that I learn kind of plugs into improving my overall kind of worldview on how this whole world works. Um, I wouldn't go that, I wouldn't go like top down and be like, where are the biggest profit pools? Um, just because you have a life and you have to be real interested in kind of what you're doing. And that's really what should try and pull you forward is there's a little bit of a mission of I'm changing the world. So like one of my biggest in investments Um, you know, it's something I'm a customer of. And so every time I spend, you know, time thinking about it, it's like, I'm trying to make my own customer experience better. Right. I personally, I like that as like a place to start and maybe it doesn't make you the richest person in the world, but being the richest person in the world doesn't mean you're the happiest person in the world. Right. And so you have to strike that balance. Um, you know, if you, if, if you're, if you're uh, the flip, the flip side of that is, um, you know, You have to make a decision as, a, you know, are you trying to make money or are you just trying to provide a social good that you can't monetize? Um, you know, so you, you have to be careful about that. A lot of the, like, it's hard. It's always hard to find big profit pools, you know, but it's, it's a good idea to start in something again, whatever you, whatever it is, you really just have to be pulled forward over like a 10 or 20 year time period, because that's how much, that's how much time it might take for you to get there. That's been my experience. Everybody else has got different experiences, but at least that's that's what I've that's what I've seen. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Nate. Thank you for the time.